0: Matthew 27, verses 45 through 54. If you have your Bible, it's also printed in your bulletin. Matthew 27, verses 45 through 54. Now hear the word of the Lord. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The, tom- uh, the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning, time to open your word. We know that it never goes out from you and returns empty. Pray that that would be so this morning. You would work in our hearts. uh, Teach us what you would have us learn, apply to us uh, what you would have us apply to our lives, and that you would do all this through your spirit, and in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. Well, I am sure that you have been treated to a... A veritable buffet of preachers and topics recently, so I hope to continue uh, in that great line of men. Um, I do want to give you a quick update before uh, we jump into the sermon. Um, RUF has kicked off for the year and has, is going really well. Um, it's going especially well at Hendricks, where I have a great group of uh, seniors, some folks that I met. Right when I moved to Conway, so really excited about them and uh, also some, some freshmen that I have met at UCA and our freshman Bible study there. So you can be praying for those two things and a quick uh, family update. My wife Christina and I, uh, you may or may not have known, had our second child, a little girl, uh, her name is Rosie, in May, and so she's great. She's four months old, and um, to go along with our two-and-a-half-year-old son, Weldon, who we had right after we moved here to, uh, to Conway, we uh, one last thing that I'm really uh, e- excited about and thankful for God's work in uh, we had our first uh, ever student from UCA Hendrix, Um Pledge membership uh, join Christ Church Conway as a member, and he is also going to be baptized in the next couple weeks. So he had been a believer for a while, uh, but uh, to see uh, one of our students uh, coming into the church, uh, becoming a part of the local church, um, a part of the PCA uh, and being baptized uh, into the body of Christ is is really exciting and uh, I think a, a great testament to uh, the ministry that we're doing there in Conway. So uh, thank you all for your prayers and support as always. And um, we're going to hop in. So Matthew uh, 27 uh I am 30 years old, and one of the things from my childhood that I would not have pegged to make a comeback is Transformers. Now, I don't know if you've seen any of these movies. Uh, I think I saw maybe one of them that came out a while ago. Uh, But Transformers is this multi-billion dollar uh, movie franchise uh, that was actually a show when, when I was a kid. And uh, there were these little cars I remember my brother and I had. They were plastic uh, little toys, and they would uh, turn into robots, and then they would turn back into cars and back into robots, depending on what you were doing with them. And the theme song to the show, I remember, said, it said, Autobots wage their battle to destroy the evil forces of the Decepticons. So uh, this was a pretty intense children's show, I think. Uh, It was serious business. My brother and I would sing the little jingle, Transformers, robots in disguise. Transformers, more than meets the eye. There was a robot voice that went along with it, but I won't do that this morning. Uh, Why did the Transformers make a comeback 20 years later? I don't really know. Uh, I'm not positive, but I have a suspicion that it's because we are fascinated When a small, disarming, insignificant, weak person somehow rises up and defeats the bad guys in the forces of evil. I mean, how many movies, how many shows, how many books have you seen that are just that? A hero overcoming insurmountable odds to conquer evil. That is why, in my opinion, the gospel story of Jesus Christ is the greatest story ever told because it is that, but it is real. It is that, but it is ultimate. the ultimate meta-narrative archetypal hero conquers evil story. That is what salvation means incidentally. Uh, it means to be delivered, From evil. So, the even Transformers is actually a salvation story with robots providing the deliverance. But in Jesus, we have something far better. We have the story, the one that is echoed down through the centuries, is still changing lives, is still a global force. Though it may not feel like it uh, here in in our country, in our cultural moment right now. uh, But it is the same story that is exploding in Africa and Asia as we speak. The story of the God-man coming down to rescue his people from the bonds of sin and death. The greatest story ever told. Now, I have a very uh, particular view of people uh, that I want to get to here in just a few minutes, but uh, I, I I think that the story and and its importance really hinges on a very uh, simple, insignificant sentence. Uh, seemingly, there in Matthew 27 verse 50, it says, "And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit." I don't know if that sounds like the world changing. Uh, it doesn't sound like much to me. But if we look a little bit closer, it says that he yielded up his spirit. In other words, that the hero of this greatest story ever told is the only person to ever choose to give up his life. That's not the same thing as, as suicide. The rest of the world, everyone who has ever lived, has had it taken away from them. But Jesus internally, when he wanted to, when He he knew it was time, chose to give up his spirit because he was the son of God and he had power over death. We love it when there is more than meets the eye and it has never been more true than in this moment. In this moment when the sound of uh, Jesus' last breath was the sound of the world changing. So how does it apply to us? Why does it matter? Well, my specific view of people and how they work, I think it's from the Bible, uh, but part of that view is that we are all think, feel, do creatures, right? Uh, We have logical thoughts, we have gut emotions, we have uh, active actions, and those three things make up us. They make up who we are. I actually think that there's something... uh, Beneath and behind that, uh, even even more so, and it's what Scripture calls the heart. Um, but for now, think, feel, do. Uh, I think that those three things are sort of like Simon Says buttons, or the you remember the game Simon? It was a circle. It had these uh, three or four buttons that were red, green, blue, yellow. I don't know if they still make that game or not, but. Um, They would light up in a pattern, and you had to uh, duplicate the pattern. And if you couldn't, then you lost. But I think that Scripture is a little bit like that. Sometimes it pushes our feel button, so think the Psalms. Sometimes it pushes our do button, so think uh, the Ten Commandments or some of Paul's exhortations. Uh, Today, I think, is a, a think button kind of day Uh, because it says that Jesus cried out with a loud voice from the cross and died. In our cultural moment where we live, that is probably not even news, let alone good news, right? I mean, most people that we come into contact with Uh, know uh, that there was a man, 30-ish A.D., named Jesus who died on the cross. Uh, Even the most radical of scholars believe that uh, there was a man named Jesus who died. And for most people that we come into contact with, they know that Christians believe that his death on the cross was for our sins. But I am interested in what is in the middle there. I'm interested in how the physical death of Jesus Christ on the cross 2,000 years ago can apply to us in our spiritual condition here today. And that's what I want to think about this morning. The Apostle Paul acknowledges that this is a great mystery. Right? Um, it takes, uh, to understand the significance of the cross takes uh, something that we might call faith knowledge. In other words, it is spiritual in nature. It is beyond our natural comprehension. It has to do with what Paul calls in Ephesians the cosmic powers. That is, uh, the forces of good and evil in the heavenly places. If you're in this room and you are skeptical about the existence of those things, these forces of good and evil in the heavenly places, then I understand. But what I want to do is um, express today the, the sort of internal biblical logic of the cross. Because I think that will help us in the believability of the cross. In other words, I want to get at what God tells us in scripture he was doing in this moment. Not what other people have said, uh, because we all have some of that uh, in us, but we don't want to grade the movie based on the trailer, right? We want to watch it in full, and by that I mean I want to consider what God himself says in his word was being accomplished as Jesus hung on the cross and breathed his last. And so two things this morning, two very important historical Christian words. To describe the cross that you may or may not be familiar with, or uh, you may at least not be familiar with them in uh, the the way that Christianity uses them, the two words are penal and substitutionary. Uh, You can guess substitutionary has to do with someone taking the place of another. Penal has to do with the legal system. It's where we get the word uh, penalty or penal code. So let's look at the first of these, substitutionary. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Galatians 2.20, he says, it was Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. 1 John 4.10, he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Him for me. That is the logic of of the cross, that Jesus didn't just die, but that he died with a purpose. He died for persons. He substituted himself for others on the cross. And we make substitutions all the time, right? Uh, We ask for maybe cheddar instead of American on our burger. We ask for a salad instead of a pizza because we're on a diet or we want to pretend we're on one. Uh, for a meal or two. Uh, Really the whole service industry, if you think about it, is based on this idea of substitution. Uh, You go out to eat because you want someone else to cook and clean for you. You get your oil changed because you don't want to crawl into the car and do it yourself. Or you're like me and you have no idea of what's even underneath there. Um, (laughs) But things get a little more complicated when we're dealing with people, right? When we're dealing with a stepmom or a stepdad, a new best friend over an old one. These are stickier situations. They're different. And what if, maybe for instance, you really want to be a better person? Or you want to make more money? Or you want to read your Bible? Or you want to get in shape? Those things are a sort of self-substitution, right? You want to substitute a better you for the one that you have. So I think the idea of substitution is not really foreign to us. But the hard thing, quite frankly, is that the cross tells us so clearly and so forcefully that we are not good enough. If we want to make more money or we want to get in shape, I think those things are sort of external substitutions. They get at who we are in some ways, but I think they're they're a relatively low impact, right? They don't get at the core of who we are. But the cross, on the other hand, is high impact in that it says something very negative about us internally and about who we are. in In our culture, uh, that is anathema, right? Uh, we're supposed to be told that we're good enough and we're smart enough, and that people like us. This is a product, of course, of the idea that it's all relative that Uh, morality, religion, ethics. Pretty much everything is just like flavors of ice cream. Some people like chocolate and some people like vanilla, and it's all fine. Uh, I know a student, I feel like I've told this story here before, but I know a student who is so committed to the idea that everything is relative, that nothing is better than anything else, uh, that she said, she told me that reality is just whatever you make of it. And I responded, is that a chair or is that an elephant? And she said, if you think that's an elephant, then that's an elephant. Now, uh, that is the far extremes of this, right? But if you take it to its logical conclusion, this idea of relativism, then that's where we get. Um, So we can give her credit for being consistent, at least. Uh, But Christianity says that Jesus had to die for us because we are real bad people, like not just that we uh, have fallen short uh, a little bit, that we don't quite measure up morally and spiritually, but that we are so wrong and so wrecked that someone had to die because of it. That our choices, that our attitude, that our life has done real harm. In the Bible, that is the category of sin, right? Uh, John says that sin is lawlessness. It's breaking God's perfect law. And when we break God's law, we are accountable to Him as a lawgiver. And thus we are condemned by Him. I heard a theologian once answer the question why do bad things happen to good people? He said that only happened once, and he volunteered. What's he talking about? He's talking about the cross. Uh, he's, he's taking uh, the biblical understanding of sin very seriously and acknowledging that Jesus is really the only one who deserves the, the capital G label good. And that, I think, explains why the Bible is so concerned with humility. Now, Why is it important to be humble? Well, I think being humble certainly makes us more likable. Humble people are nicer to be around in general. Uh, But really, I think it's because without it, without humility, you will not care at all about the cross. If you don't understand the bad news, then the cross can never be good news for you. In other words, there is no such thing as a hero unless there are people for the hero to save. Unless we have a sin problem that we cannot solve ourselves jesus's death is is the same as anyone else's now this part of the logic of the cross requires a god that uh, many people do not like and maybe you're in that boat maybe an angry god makes you uncomfortable i would argue that it should In fact, uh, people in Scripture, when they are confronted by God, when they come face-to-face with Him, they almost invariably fall down thinking that they are dead or thinking that they are dying. Uh, That is the intensity of the presence of God. So an angry God is uncomfortable. But then again, so is someone hung by nails from a tree until they suffocate to death, right? Right? Uh, This is violence. The Bible, the cross, the gospel is uncomfortable because life is uncomfortable. I know a student, he told me uh, last week that when he was 12, this was here in Little Rock, uh, his mother's ex-boyfriend broke into their house, pushed him out of the way as he was coming down the hallway and gunned down his mother uh, in her bathroom, shot her four times. I want a God who hates, who will punish, who is actively opposed to that type of sin and evil and violence. And I'm not just going for shock value with that story. I'm just trying to say that if what Jesus has done is really going to be good news, then it has to meet the pain and the suffering of this world head on. It has to get down in the muck and the mire of life and death and death. And bad guys and evil, or it cannot help us. And if you think about it that way, then I'm convinced an angry God will make you less uncomfortable because deep down we all want God to be angry at sin and sadness and sickness and wickedness and injustice. I love. Feel good worship music. I love celebration and encouragement and joy, and those things are real in the Christian life. Uh, But we can talk about that when we get to the resurrection because this is about something different. The cross is about the darker side of this world and about the darker side of us in particular because if we want a God who is against sin and sadness and wickedness and pain and evil, and injustice, and we want God to be against those things out there, then we have to want God to be against those things in here, inside of us. And that's where we get at uh, the second point, the penal aspect of the cross. It's about the penalty for breaking God's law. The courtroom is an inherently dramatic place isn't it? That's why we have so many shows that, are, that uh, take place in a courtroom. Uh, when I was a child, I wanted to be a lawyer uh, because of an episode of Matlock that I saw. Uh, I, I think maybe this is the first episode of Matlock, but I'm not positive. I haven't gone back and looked. But, uh, of course, Matlock, the great uh, defender of, of innocence, somehow all of his clients are innocent. I don't know how it works. Uh, is His client is on trial, and It certainly looks like his client did it, but the body was missing. And so uh, at one point, Matlock gets in front of the jury and everyone else, and he stands up and he points to the door, and he says, Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I know that my defendant did not do this crime because the victim is alive and well, and she is about to walk through that door. And, of course, everyone looks. She doesn't walk through the door, but Matlock's uh, client gets off. Why? Because if you look at the door, then you are admitting that you don't even really know that this woman is dead, let alone uh, w- would one be able to convict someone for the death. So my young mind was enraptured by this. I almost went to law school over that, <laughs> that one episode. I think the courtroom is dramatic because it is our best, our most formal way to get at the truth, to get at what really happened. And so when I said the cross is spiritual, that it has to do with what Paul calls the cosmic powers. Well, in the same way that there are earthly courtrooms, there, are, there is a cosmic, a spiritual, a heavenly courtroom. And how do we know that? We know that because Jesus talks about it. And he tells us that he is going to be on the bench There And we even get a picture of it in Revelation. And so the Bible is full of judicial language, all of it pointing to the day when we ourselves will be on trial, when we will be in the dock, as they say, where the accused sits. Now, modern people, C.S. Lewis says, have reversed this. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a whole book on this. Called God in the Dock. And he says, The ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are quite reversed. He is the judge, God is in the dock. Man is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war and poverty and disease, he is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. Maybe you struggle with this. Maybe you struggle in your mind and in your heart with who is accountable to whom but i would submit that if god is the one who has to explain himself to you and why he allows what he does in this world and in your life then the cross will not mean much to you here's what i mean by that because if you give yourself the moral high ground over god if you impugn his motives then you don't really need a savior and even beyond that i would say that if you do that uh, if you take the moral high ground over God, you actually make Jesus immoral. Because if Jesus didn't really have to die for you, if you don't really need a Savior, then he never should have gone to the cross. He should have, he should have stayed alive. He should have worked the way Mother Teresa did, all the way until his death, doing good things for people. But First John 1.8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And so that is not how God uh, portrays what is actually happening on the cross. The cross says that you were in the dock, that you were condemned for your sin, but that God loved you so much for no reason inside you that he sent his own son as a substitute substitute himself for you to stand in the dock for you so that you could be saved the cross says in other words to quote tim keller we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe yet at the very same time we are more loved and accepted in jesus christ than we ever dared hope in other words the cross simultaneously breaks your heart and puts it back together again It breaks you down so that it can build you back up. It kills you so that you might live. And that is the good news that comes out of the the sad and violent and bloody scene of death on the cross, that God loved his people so much that he was willing to do that. That he loved his people so much that when he was utterly angry at you and your sin and ready to destroy you, that he instead, in a sense, destroyed himself. If you want to be upset with God for having wrath, for being that kind of judge, for being against sinful people, then you have to give him credit for taking that wrath on himself as a substitute. That is why theologians have called what happened at the cross penal substitutionary atonement. Jesus taking your punishment after you broke God's law and thus opening up a way of peace between you and God, a way of reconciliation. It's sort of like the courtroom scene in Les Mis, if you've seen that. Uh, the court thinks that a man named Champ Mathieu is Jean Valjean, and they say this about him They say, We have here not merely a thief, a robber, we have here in our hands a bandit, an outlaw who has broken his parole a former convict, a most dangerous outlaw, a former offender, Jean Valjean, whom justice has long been seeking. Imagine if that was you. Imagine if you were in the dock and that was being said about you. And in the story, the real Jean Valjean steps forward and he says, I am the convict. That is what Jesus did for you except that he was the innocent one. You really were the bandit, the outlaw, whom justice sought. But then Jesus took your place so that you could walk out of the courtroom. And in Les Mis it says, The verdict of the, uh, of the jury discharged from all accusation the said jean Matthew, and he immediately set free, went on his way, stupefied by this whole fantastic vision. It sounds a little bit like worship, doesn't it? This incredible feeling of how can this be? How can I get away? How am I free? Jesus for you. That is the logic of the cross. How do you get it? How do you get his death 2,000 years ago applied to you in your spiritual state right now? It's only by faith. Faith is like the pipeline between you and Christ. You need something to connect you to him. Some way for his merit to flow down to you. And that is what faith is. Is faith thinking, feeling, or doing? The answer is yes. It's all three of those. It gets at our heart, the deepest part of who we are. Faith includes feeling the weight of your sin... Uh, understanding in your mind the mercy that God offers you in the cross, and then turning from your sin and receiving and resting on Jesus alone as your only hope before God, as your only hope when you sit in the dock. Now, there are two final pieces of good news here. We don't have time to unpack them, but the first is that Jesus didn't stay on the cross, as you know. Uh, He didn't stay in the grave that they made for him. He broke out. Just like he gave up his life at just the right time, at just the right time, he took it up again. So that now Jesus is physically uh, at the right hand of the Father. He is loose. He is at large, we might say. The second piece of good news is that Jesus didn't just die for your sins. By faith, he actually gives you his record in return. Theologians call that double imputation. Very fancy. But it's just a biblical idea. We read Second Corinthians 5 earlier to return to it. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's like imagine the pipeline of faith flowing both ways so that Jesus takes your sin and gives you in return his righteousness. Luther called it the great exchange. That is what happened on the cross. It was more than meets the eye. The God of this world took sin on himself in order that you, by faith, could walk out of God's courtroom, not just free, but righteous as well. And all of that happens only by faith, by giving up our our own project of of salvation and looking to God, submitting to him instead. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you again for your word. Uh, We thank you for the simplicity of it uh, when it tells us that you, uh, the God of the universe who came down and took on flesh, Uh, breathe uh, your last on the cross. What an incredible idea that is. And we thank you that the story does not end there, that the story continues with uh, resurrection and new life and sanctification. Someday uh, it will continue in glorification. uh, when We will be with you forever and ever. We look forward to that day. We pray that you would grant us faith that we might meet you there and worship you forever. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.